Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The Bank of Canada raised its key interest rate to its highest level in 22 years, 4.75%. We have in the last, well, yesterday and then the weekend before, we've spoken to Canadians living in their cars. They're economically so stressed. They're living in their cars. And they're maybe not even being counted as being uh, unemployed or uh, receiving social assistance because they're still working to a certain extent. It's, it's a very troublesome reality. We talked to Bill in British Columbia yesterday. We talked to Peter in British Columbia a week ago. And more and more Canadians have been saying, can't make all the payments now. If you have a variable rate mortgage, your mortgage rates have gone up likely dramatically. Food has gone up significantly. And uh, Sylvain Charlebois told us yesterday, for many Canadians, it's now the balance. What can we afford for food if we're going to be able to maintain the cost of our accommodations? We're joined by our great friend, Professor Eric Cam, macroeconomics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. And Professor Cam, congratulations on being promoted to full professor. You earned that. Well, thank you very much, Roy. But that is very, very small potatoes um, as to what you have been through. And I think, if I may for a second, uh, I think that this period of illness that you fought through not only speaks to your mettle, but if you keep an eye on the media, social media especially, I think that you can now very much take your position as the voice and the conscience of this country. And I hope you just realize a, a fraction of the love that people have for you and the sigh of relief that your fans have to have you back. And I wanted to welcome you back personally. Thank you so much. And I will tell you, I uh, daily, I was uh, watching social media and I was on as much as I could be, there were days where I just didn't have the strength to do anything. It was a rough two months. But uh, what I saw from Canadians coast to coast absolutely shocked me. And I was, I was, I was, I'm, it's a humbling, and I'm, I, I mean this sincerely, it's a humbling experience. Because all I ever thought of myself was a guy going to work every day, or in this case, going to work, you know, on Saturdays and Sundays in the program, but I still work on the show Monday to Friday. But it was a humbling experience, and I thank everybody for the support. It just means, not only meant, but still means a great deal. I'm glad you said that. Uh, not that I'm the voice of Canada, but um, thank you so much. Professor um, Cam, so we have the highest Bank of Canada interest rate in 22 years, 4.75%. How do you interpret that and what that's going to mean to the Canadian who's trying to fit in the bills, the mortgages, the food, the kids going to school, all of the extracurricular activities, buying gas for the vehicles. How are we going to fare with interest rates going up and the inflation rate still climbing? Well, that's that's the problem, Roy. And the answer is, of course, nothing positive. Uh, the Bank of Canada reacts to macro indicators, and they tend to be what's called leading, which means that they look at those indicators and say that they're giving us a view, a window of what's going to happen in the next few months. And specifically, the two that they're looking at right now are that notwithstanding all of that they have done since the pandemic, you still have gross domestic product 
the score of this country trending upward, and you still have the consumer price index trending upward. So the bank comes in and says, well, if GDP is going up and the aggregate price level is going up, then I guess we're not finished our job. And so they want to throw a little bit more cold water on the economy. I mean, your question is very important. I'm on the record, for whatever that's worth, as stating that I would not have raised the interest rate any higher. And simply put, for two reasons. Number one, it has not. The inflation that we have seen has not yet gone through the labor market. And I'm holding my breath for what happens when it hits the labor market. People may have seen this week, there was a slight decrease in the demand for labor. And I'm terrified that that's going to turn into a large demand uh, decrease for yeah. labor. Yeah. And so it's the job market that I'm I'm looking at. But if you look at the housing market, which really, you know, as the housing market goes, so too goes our economy. I was quite stunned to see this week that estimates are between only 18 and 20 percent of all Canadian mortgages have had to be renegotiated in the past year. 20 percent, Roy. So we're still at 80 percent. Four out of five mortgages that exist in this country still have to be renegotiated. And I'm terrified for that family that has to renegotiate and watch their mortgage payments almost double. Because as, as you said, in an industrialized country, food should not be the residual of what we do with our money. But for too many people, Roy, we're getting there. Yeah. And uh, you know what worries me as well is uh, when people's loans come due or their loan payments are too large for them to make or lines of credit and credit card debt, all of that starts to add up as far as the individuals and individual families are concerned. And that's an additional weight. Professor Cam, when I drive through my neighborhood, I'm seeing for sale signs on lawns or for rent signs on lawns. There was nothing like that a few months ago. No, no. And this is my fear is that you're going to start to see more and more of these things as that 80% who in theory have been unaffected by inflation in the housing market become affected by inflation in the housing market. And we know that that's compounded by, I mean, inflation is the one statistic that is in everybody's face. You see it when you go to any store and spend any amount of money. I mean, the, the number of goods for which prices are up and up significantly is a majority of those goods in our society. And sadly, of course, the ones that are counted in core inflation, not the least of which is, is food. And so we're at a very dangerous time right now and I hope that people remember, I know that the Canadian population is smarter than their government sometimes thinks. And I hope that they remember the pandemic and what happened after the pandemic and the level of monetary stimulus that happened after the pandemic, because it's very, very in right now to blame the Bank of Canada for failing to do their job. Well, they are failing to do their job because their job is to keep inflation at 2%. But what they were handed by our government in terms of poor monetary policy, poor monetary planning, and now quantitative tightening, I don't know what people think the Bank of Canada could have done any better. Again, would I have raised rates? No. I think now is a very tenuous time that they should have held rates exactly where they were, at least through this calendar year. But the bank is obsessed with inflation. That's nothing new. Nobody cared about that when the target and the reality was 2%. But now, Roy, we're creeping up again, six, seven percent. And I hope that Canadians have their hands tightly fixed upon their wallets and keep their spending to a minimum until this passes. Yeah. And the parliamentary budget officer was on the program 
last weekend, and I asked him about the carbon tax, and he said ultimately it's going to hurt those who can least afford it, and the clean fuel regulations also will disadvantage those who are at the lowest or lower end of the economic scale. Now, the federal government challenged him and said his his his, his report was unbalanced, particularly Stephen Gilbo said that about him, or Gilbo, Gilbo. And uh, the PBO said, well, look, uh, the information that we received that the report was based on came from his ministry. So what are they talking about? I, I like uh, Yves Giroux. As, as you know, he's been on the show many times. Um, do you know what I heard from Bill and from Peter living in their cars in uh, British Columbia? Uh, Bill's been doing it for a year and a half with his wife. They're both employed, but they can't afford to rent accommodations. They just can't afford it. And Peter's been doing it for four weeks, and it, it's tough on them. But they also said there are more and more people doing this. They find almost small communities, Professor Cam, of people living in their cars who gather somewhere uh, and on, on, a, on any given night. And if this phenomenon, and they expect the phenomenon to grow, if this is happening, that to me is another bit of a, the tip of the iceberg. And it's, it's being noted. Um, what do you say to that? Anomaly or, or something to be concerned about? Something to absolutely be concerned about. There's no such thing really as an anomaly, Roy, as it affects human beings. You know, this is the problem in a lot of academia today. And if my colleagues are listening, they're going to vomit. But we, 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 we work in abstract terms and abstract mathematics and sometimes forget that we're talking about real people, real lives, real families and real children. I did a little bit of crunching of inflation this week because there's kind of three types of inflation that people try to talk about in economics. One is called sectoral, one is called demand, one is called expectations. What are they about? I don't want to put your audience in a coma so we don't have to delve too deep. But the point is, is generally an inflationary cycle, one or two of these types of inflation are rampant. We have all three. We have all three types of inflation. Goods and services have gone up. There's pent up money that people are spending like crazy. And then there's the expectations that inflation is only going to continue. And that pushes up wage expectations and then wage contracts. And then the whole spiral begins again. So what is the result of this? Well, there's lots. But I think the first and the most important one is credit. The amount of credit in an economy gets cut and cut significantly so that people that need access to credit the most don't have it. And this makes me really sad because I heard the people on your show talking about these living conditions and you kind of want to say this is a blip on the economic radar, Roy, but it's not a blip. I mean, to what what do we hold on to to think that inflation isn't going to continue because it is the labor market isn't going to weaken because it is. And so sadly, sadly, and I'll say it again, there's only one thing to do if you are a consumer and a homeowner right now, and that is to please downgrade your expectations of your life in terms of its economic life, no conspicuous spending, start to save and make sure you have enough for that rainy day. Because Roy, that rainy day isn't months or years away now. It's weeks away for a good chunk of the Canadian population. And I'm very sorry to say that. What are your students thinking and saying? Oh, that's simple. My students have one question and one question alone. They say, Dr. Cam, am I ever going to afford a house in the GTA? And my answer to them is probably not. And they turn to me for um, lighthearted, um, you know, 
uh, discussion sometimes and to tell them that their lives are good. And I do tell them that their lives are good. They're wonderful young people. They're studious. They're smart. But they have to look at reality and they see these numbers. Am I going to have a one and a half million dollar down payment for a house? And I try to tell them, you know, the good news is you'll probably start living an hour away, an hour and a half away from the GTA and then make your way toward the center of the city. But their number one question is housing. They see their parents struggling and they ask, is their struggle going to be continued? And is it going to be better or worse? And because I never, ever lie to your audience or students, we know it's only going to get worse. And so that makes me really sad. But I think the only thing sadder would be to lie to them. Let them know that this is their economic reality and so that they can start to prepare for it now. So when it comes to governments and particularly the federal government and this federal government, what, uh, and, and we've talked about this before, but I've been gone for a couple of months, so I'd like to know what you're thinking today. Would one of the most logical steps continue to be cut the taxes, reduce the taxes, and do it now? Well, unless you're a rampant Marxist, it's really the only answer. The only thing that you can do for these people who are holding on to their homes or not even living in a home is increase their disposable income. And I've only found one or two ways of doing that. One of them is to win a lottery. And that doesn't happen very often, and nor should you believe it is. And number two is to put more money into people's pockets. And I think we can do that two ways. Number one is to cut taxes, get rid of this idiotic carbon tax and anything related to it, because I don't care how much you love this green agenda. You don't love it more than sleeping in a bed in a house with a roof. So I'm sorry to those people on the far left, but you just don't. And number two, as a country, it is time to start exploiting our comparative advantages. And those lie lie in things like resources and oil. Start producing, stop buying, and maybe give the next generations a chance, Roy. So when this whole Bernardo business started, again, I thought of Doug and Donna French. I thought of Debbie Mahaffey. Kristen, Leslie, Tammy Homolka, Carla's sister, who she set up for Bernardo, who also died, Tammy. And I thought, you know, we're going to get so focused on Bernardo, we're going to forget there are other cases, there are other incidents, there are other cases going on that we should talk about, because they illustrate just how significantly large this problem is. And I went through this for several years in the 1990s. And some of the stories that we covered were just absolutely horrific. And people became engaged and decided to do something about it. And the laws changed, the regulations changed, because public pressure made a change. Child killers are released from prison in Canada. Got it? Harold Smeltzer abducted, sexually assaulted, murdered. And this is going to be hard to listen to, so if you can't, turn your radio down for a few seconds. Harold Smeltzer abducted, sexually assaulted, murdered, and disposed of five-year-old Kimberly Thompson of Calgary in a garbage bag. I know it's so hard for her sister, who's with us now, to hear this, but she knows, obviously. 
Smelter had assaulted more than 40 women and girls by the time he abducted Kimmy. Today, he's still assessed as a moderate to high risk to reoffend. But the parole board placed him in a halfway house. A halfway house is sort of an intermediary step between the prison and being fully paroled. So you have to live there, but you live in a reasonably normal, quote-unquote, life. You're still supervised, but you, uh, you don't live the prison life. Now the parole board, from what uh, Tina, Kimberly's sister, tells me, has provided Smeltzer with the right to just stay out all night on weekends. Hi, Tina. How are you? How are you, Tina? I'm okay. Um, I cope. You know, it gets, doesn't get any easier. I get reminded not just every six months, but every month when they decide to give him his overnight visits. How old were you, how old were you when, uh, when he I was murdered 10. your sister? You were 10 years old. Yeah. Do you remember how uh, a 10-year-old child deals with this? What, what do you remember of those earliest days for you? Well, I gained a lot of weight because in my 10-year-old brain, I thought that it made me safer because people don't like heavy people. And so I lived the majority of my adult life as morbidly obese until I recently got quite sick. And I've dropped a ton of weight, but it still affects me to this day. That's what people have to remember. Yeah. Even though you know, the offender, quote unquote, is granted privileges, and it is a privilege to be released after you murder a child. Mm-hmm. Privileges you shouldn't have, in my view. For the right. victims and the victim of the victims' families, it, they, they, it doesn't go away. It doesn't change anything. Nope. You know, I talked to your mom several times, as you know, on the air yeah. a number of years ago. And she struggled and suffered. How's your mother? It's the same. You know, doesn't really get any better. Um, She's getting older, obviously. She's 70 this year. Um, Physically, she's, you know, she's got arthritis and other issues going on. Mentally, she's still lost. You know, when it comes to Kimmy, it it's something that never goes away. Yeah. You it, know, he stole Kimmy from us. So you've been watching the justice system for these years now. R- yeah, remind us what... 48 years. I'm sorry? Yeah, for 48 years. But he, this didn't happen 48 years ago, did it? 1980. 1980. Wow, that's right. January of 1980. When was he first released from prison to give him options to get out? November 2008. So 28 years. Yep. So you've been watching the justice system from the very beginning. It's been part Mm -hmm. of your life to watch what they do with with Smelter. 
Mm-hmm. How did, how do you assess how the system, the correctional system and the parole board have handled him? What's your feeling? How does it make you feel? Frustrated. Because he's still a moderate to high risk to offend, which puts other people, women and children, at risk. It horrifies me that people of Regina have to worry every day about whether or not he will strike again. And it's well documented that pedophiles aren't curable. And he's a pedophile. And he had attacked 40 girls and and women prior to... That he admitted to, yes. That he admitted to, right. Yes. And the reason he murdered Kimmy is because he realized that she would identify him. Because he lived a block away from us. His nephew was in my class. Oh, my. I didn't know that. Yeah. His nephew and I went to to school together. And if he didn't go to school with us, he went to school with my cousins. Because he transferred after that. So it wasn't just hard on us as a family, but his family too, because they have to live with the stigma of what he's done. Uh, you know, when this started, I'm just going to tell you this quickly, this started in the 1970s, this this change in the justice system, when the then Solicitor General in Pierre Trudeau's government, Trudeau Sr., said in Parliament, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm very, very close to quoting him correctly, we will from now on concentrate on the rehabilitation of the individual and not on the protection of society. Yep. And here we are. How does that make you feel, Tina? <laughs> well, it's true. It's still like that. Um, he has a right to appeal to appeal every parole board decision that's made. The victim fam- the victim's families do not. Talk to us about that. Talk to us about how your family's been treated by the uh, parole board, and particularly when it comes to victims' impact statements. Well, personally, myself, I've never been able to write a victim impact statement because I can't put into words how deeply what he did affected me because it altered my life forever. Not just my life, but my, the rest of my family, anybody in our neighborhood. Still to this day, and it's been, like I said, 48 years since it happened. If I go to Calgary and I meet people who are from Calgary at that time, they know who I am. All I have to do is say Kimmy's name. And people are like, oh, my God, I remember when that happened. But we don't get a voice as a community even about whether or not he's out. Because the parole board decided he's done his 25 years and whatever treatment or counseling they deem is necessary for him to remain a moderate to high risk. Because he applied at 25 years and didn't get it because he hadn't done any of the work. So he took an additional three years to do the work so that he could get out. 
So he did the work, but he's still considered a moderate to high risk, and they let him out. Yes. There was a time, was there not, when he was in uh, that halfway house, so he was out, and he wasn't too far from a school. Did he not inform the parole board that he had uh, thoughts he shouldn't be having, and they put him back in prison for a while? Am I right about that? Well, it was that, and they found a video that they had that had some sexual contact content, which he was prohibited from from having. Prevent it was in part of the parole board conditions that he wasn't to have anything sexually related. Did your family concerning children? Yeah. Did your family have a sense when you went to the parole board? Your mom or members of your family went. Mm-hmm. Did you have a sense that you were just in the way? Yeah, they did. They did. Um, they read their statements. Apparently, they heard what he had to say, and then the decision was made. And I, I, they, I, I don't believe that anybody felt like they, they were really heard. I didn't go um, because I knew that emotionally, I, I couldn't do it. I could not sit in the same room as him. I won't even go to Regina. I have a sister who lives in Imperial. I won't even go to Regina. So the effect on you is forever. Yes. My son has been hyper-protected. I wouldn't allow him on any media whatsoever for fear that somebody in his family might see it and show it to him Mm. or somehow he would figure out who my kid was. Even though he has a different name than me, I still had that fear. So so yeah, you're living, you're living your life in fear because Mm -hmm. of, because of uh, Smelter. Yep. What changes do you believe need to be made? What has to change to make the justice system actually representative and and consider the families of victims and victims and 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 really be a fair justice system what has to change well i think the victims need to have more rights i don't believe that the prisoners or the person that committed the crime has any rights after they committed such a crime why why they can't they aren't capable of functioning in a society like a, a normal human being. Why do you let them out? Yeah. They should be there forever. Yes, as a taxpayer, I resent the fact that I have to pay for him. However, I would rather pay for him to be behind bars than every other family in this country be safe. You know, I, I tell people about Clifford Olson, who was the British oh. Columbia seer of color of children, and was yep. sentenced to life in prison, was held in a maximum security prison in, a, in, a, in solitary confinement, and he wasn't allowed out of his cell for 23 hours a day. He was judged to be, you know, he was judged to be too dangerous to leave his cell, yep. but when he had a Section 745 parole hearing opportunity, and he was in Regina, Saskatchewan. I'm not sure whether the prison was in Regina or where it was in Saskatchewan. But he was in Saskatchewan, and the parole hearing, 745 hearing, was in Vancouver. So they flew him in a mm-hmm. private—he was too dangerous to leave his cell, but they flew him by private jet, private jet, to the parole opportunity hearing. Meanwhile, Gary and Sharon Rosenfeld, 
The parents of one of his victims, who were living in Ottawa, were told by the federal government of the time, we're not going to pay for your expenses to get to Vancouver. Yeah. You just you yeah. just make it on your own. You pay for it. But they fly Olsen out in a private jet and back yep. in a private jet. Yep. Yep. My mom attempted many years later to try and get assistance because they, she when she went to the parole hearing, victim services denied her because it was too long. So last night I watched some of the uh, Stanley Cup final game between the Florida Panthers and uh, Las Vegas Golden Knights, and I wanted Florida to win. I mean, I just this. <laughs> I wanted to keep going. Uh, I, I don't care about either team, honestly, but I just wanted it to keep going. And of course, uh, Vegas could could wrap it up on was it Tuesday? I think Tuesday. The last time a Canadian NHL team hoisted the Stanley Cup was 1993, when the Montreal Canadiens accomplished that feat. So, what's it going to take for another Canadian team to win the cup? During this playoff run, I think most Canadian fans had pinned their hopes on the Maple Leafs and the Oilers, and Unfortunately, we know what happened. Uh, Kelly Rudy is with us, former NHL goaltender, of course, uh, including with the Los Angeles Kings and the, uh, hate to bring this up, Kelly, 92-93 Stanley <laughs> Cup Finals <laughs> against the Montreal Canadiens. And now longtime Hockey Night in Canada commentator and analyst. He's also dealt with mental health issues as a player and later as a broadcaster, and it's very important to him. You know what, th- Kelly, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, Roy. Thanks for the invite. Uh, I've been a big fan. I've been listening to you for years. Well, thank you. And I was a huge fan of yours when you were playing. I felt sorry for you in the NHL because it was like you're in a shooting gallery. <laughs> I, I still think. <laughs> well, only part of it, Roy. When I was uh, playing for the Islanders, it was uh, we had a, uh, a, a team that was more defensive-minded. and uh, But having said that, when I went to L.A., I had the time of my life. Yeah, I faced a lot of shots, but, man, I had a really good time with it. And uh, I had some great advice from Jerry Cheevers one time. I had just been traded to Los Angeles, and, you know, it seemed like every score was uh, 7-5 or something like that. And he says, Kelly, who cares what your numbers look like, your goals against? Just have fun and win games. And uh, so it was an attitude I took with me uh, for the rest of my career, especially playing in Los Angeles. Just had a ton of fun with it. And I think it was good for the game of hockey, the kind of style that we played, of course, with Wayne and Luke and Yari and all the great players we had. Yeah, it was. And uh, nobody will forget the bandana that you, uh, right. that your style, you had, you had style, Kelly. You had, you brought style to the game. Up, right. That was just a ripped up uh, t-shirt, Roy. I, I always had long hair as a kid. And then, uh, when I was finally in the NHL and, uh, you know, the sweat was getting in my eyes and I wore contacts and it used to bug, bug me like crazy. And so one day at practice in New York, I just ripped up a t-shirt that we wore under our gear and lo and behold, it uh, seemed to be more absorbent. And then it become a, became a trademark of mine of which I hated later on. Oh, no kidding. Uh, yeah. I, I loved it. Uh, and I just want to tell everybody who's listening, um, you face the most shots for an NHL goaltender during the regular season in 88-89, and you led the NHL in most saves that year, and you were in the top five shots against four times, but you were still having a great time playing. And you know what? I didn't know that, Roy. Um, that's kind of cool. I, I knew that I faced a lot of shots, but I didn't know I, was, uh, I faced that many. That's uh, Yeah, I had a really great time. I mean, 
when you're playing on a team with Wayne and everywhere you go, you know, it was sold out and, you know, it was, it was a real good lesson for all of us on that team, how to get the best out of ourselves because oftentimes, and I'll just make up a city, you know, we maybe went to, to uh, Minnesota to play the North stars and, you know, uh, you've got a cold or you don't feel great or your wife calls and says, Hey, the kids are sick and you're a little preoccupied with your thoughts. And all of a sudden you're in the Met center and uh, it's a full building because everybody paid their hard earned money to see Wayne Gretzky. You know, you have to dig deep to play your very, very best because you weren't going to let your buddy down and, and those fans that had paid so much money to see Wayne. So it was a great lesson for all of us how to uh, really prepare and uh, under you know circumstances when maybe you weren't feeling great. Yeah, so true. So uh, I, I have to I have to I have to ask you this question. So you're in goal yeah. for the LA Kings. In the Stanley Cup final in the 92-93 season yeah. against the Canadians and Patrick Roy, yeah. they win. What are the memories of that series, and how does it feel to see the other teams skate off with the Cup? Okay, well, uh, I didn't watch their celebration. I don't remember much of the handshake line because I was so disappointed. Uh, to this day, it's still my uh, biggest uh, disappointment in the game of hockey, and I I can tell you right now, Roy, I'm sitting in a, a truck going to the Miami airport for game five, Vegas, and right in front of me is Ron McLean. So he did that series. So he's well-versed uh, how both sides were feeling. And I'm sitting beside Kevin Bieksa, and he went through a similar experience that I did losing in 2011 with a, that great Vancouver team. So Kevin would tell you the same as I tell you that it's a, the biggest disappointment in our careers. Uh, losing in the first round really sucks, but losing in the finals hurts way more. And, uh, you know, I was so disappointed. I don't remember anything. I, I, I know for a fact I didn't watch Montreal lift the, the cup. It would have been too painful. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. So uh, what's it going to take now? So it's been 30 years. What's it going to take for it? This is what Canadian fans are asking all the time. Mm-hmm. What's it going to take for a Canadian NHL team, Canada-based team, to win the Stanley Cup? And is it just happenstance that nobody's won it for 30 years. Well, I think it's partially happenstance. I think there's, you know, there's always luck involved. I don't care if you're the winning team or losing team, there's good luck and bad luck. I think to a certain degree in Canada, as we all know, it's a little bit harder to attract free agents. So that is one thing that uh, somehow they, hopefully they can manipulate the salary cap by maybe, maybe as Ron mentioned, having one exemption on, each team, similar to how the NBA runs their league with their teams. Kevin and I talked about how difficult it must be for certain players to want to play in Canada. I mean, with all the noise around the teams, I don't know if I was, you know, lucky that I didn't play in Canada. You know, I live here and I love it and I'm on Hockey Night in Canada, but I don't know how I would have dealt with the scrutiny. Um, You know, in today's NHL, it's much more difficult for the players with social media. I think that might bother some players. I, I mean, I don't know if you'd know this, Roy, but I was quite shy uh, back then, and I don't know how I would have handled uh, all the attention. Um, so you have that. I remember when Scott Niedermeyer left uh, New Jersey, and he didn't want to go to a Canadian team. He wanted to go somewhere where you know, he just sort of blend in and be himself. And there's no right or wrong answer to that. And look, they won the Stanley Cup with him. And so I think that plays into it. Um, you know, it, it, 
it's going to happen. Some Canadian team is going to happen. Since Montreal won in 93, six times Canadian teams have been in the Stanley Cup final. So it will happen. I just don't know when. Okay. And, and, and you know, I, I remember I lived in Montreal for many years. And players would not want to come to Montreal because, because of all the attention and because right. of the taxes. That was yep. a big issue. And there were la- the language issue was a big factor for, for many players yep. as well. So you're very attuned to the mental health issue. You've been open about having challenging times as a player and as an analyst. Uh, yep. What are the greatest needs to address mental health issues? And you can tell us, please, as, uh, as well about your daughter and your son-in-law's moregooddaysclothing.com uh, effort. Sure. So thanks for bringing this up, Roy, because it's something that's uh, near and dear to our hearts. It's something that we're not afraid to talk about. And uh, I know the Canadian Mental Health Association has just changed one of their statistics. They, they said before that to one in uh, five Canadians uh, are affected by mental health. Now they've changed that number to two. And I believe personally, Roy, that more uh, the number is greater than that. I think in some way all of us are affected by mental health. Uh, I think the number... Two out of five, that means it's completely debilitating for somebody and they might not be able to go to work, uh, can't leave their house. They have all these other issues. Uh, For Caitlin, she was uh, 12 when she was diagnosed with uh, OCD and anxiety. Uh, Still to this day, she wakes up with thoughts about uh, uh, waking up with a disease or dying. But she's been given the tools after years and years and years of therapy to uh, rationalize those thoughts. Uh, she does her breathing and all sorts of things to get through a day. Uh, myself, personally, as you mentioned, I had it in 92, 93, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't recognize until many years later. And then uh, in 2019, those thoughts came back to me, and they always start out as rational, and then they turn irrational. And uh, for the longest time, I didn't have the tools to break the loop, so I just suffered. And that's the other thing. Uh, if you feel like you're going through something, get the help that you need because it's way too painful, way too lonely to do it on your own. And uh, that's what I suggest to all people. And let's keep this conversation alive because it affects so many of us. Yeah. And the more good days, clothing.com. Yes. So that uh, was, that's so cool. Uh, so Caitlin came to us after four years of extensive therapy. So now she's 16 years old, and she comes to uh, my wife, Dawn, and I, she, she says, Mom, Dad, I'm having more good days than bad. And so many years later, her and her husband, uh, they both have their mental health issues, and, and they get their, I think just before getting married, they came up with this concept, sort of clothing line, and so as you mentioned, it's moregooddaysclothing.com, and 10% of all proceeds goes to mental health, uh, suicide prevention. And it's just a really cool thing. It's amazing to me. I'll get on a plane every once in a while, Roy, and somebody will have a hoodie on or somebody will have a cap or I go to my local coffee shop in the morning and I'm wearing some of their clothing and somebody will ask me the question, oh, I love that. What's the slogan? What's the uh, genesis behind it? And so I explain it to them. And uh, in fact, they were at two markets this past weekend in Calgary where we live and uh, sold a ton of uh, things. They're at a golf tournament tomorrow in Calgary. Uh, I'll be speaking through uh, Zoom uh, about mental health, and they're going to be there, and some of their products are being given to every golfer. So, yes, thanks for asking about that. Yeah, and a percentage of the proceeds goes to mental health. Yes, 100%. Yeah. And uh, in particular, suicide prevention, I believe. 
There will be four by-elections federally on the 19th of June, two in Manitoba, one other in Ontario, and one in Quebec. And as I said earlier, the by-election, which is perhaps being watched with greatest interest, is Portage-Lisgar in Manitoba, where former conservative or, yeah, interim leader Candace Bergen resigned after successive victories, the most recent with about 50% of the vote, in uh, 2021. Running for the conservatives, Brandon Leslie, Mr. Bergen, or Ms. Bergen's former campaign manager. Running for the liberals is Kerry Smith, the director with the Manitoba Métis Federation. And representing the People's Party of Canada is their leader, Maxime Bernier. The Conservatives want to get rid of Bernier, and they are hoping to be able to do that in this particular by-election. Joining us is my chorus radio, radio colleague at 680 CJOB in Winnipeg and Global Television News, Richard Cloutier. So, Richard, thanks very much for coming on. This Portage Lisgar is interesting, very interesting and it's important. Fascinating. So walk us through what, uh, as you understand what's going on, what what are the polls, what's your information telling you about what's most likely to happen? Well, I've spent some time in the area, uh, more time this coming weekend, and uh, this is a two-person race between the Conservatives and Maxine Bernier, and uh, do not count Bernier out whatsoever. Uh, and I say this because one of the reasons why I think Candace Bergen got out, and certainly when she won the last election, and we saw Parliament go the way it did, she went a little bit more harder right to deal with that hard right within the constituency that will gravitate to to Bernier. And yeah, it's an anti-vaxxer component to it, but that would be simplifying it way too much. It's more an anti-Ottawa, anti-establishment type of vote that Bernier is able to connect with people. There are some hot issues around um, around minority rights in the area and, and issues centered around the pride, mo- pride movement in some of these, uh, these areas. But, you know, within what Bernier's message here is, let's send a message to Ottawa. Is it Trump-like? Ah, it could be. It could be interpreted that way. Uh, this is the Conservatives' one to, to lose. But I think we both know the history of by-elections, and sometimes by-elections are not necessarily a reflection of the way people would vote in general elections, but certainly can send a message as a result. And I think there's two messages being sent from Manitoba. One in in this riding could be sending Bernier uh, with a very, very slight minority of that vote. I think it's tight. Uh, And the other one is in the, the core Winnipeg riding, where you've got the movement that's put, what, 46 candidates on the ballot, uh, a protest towards Justin Trudeau's flip-flop on on electoral reform. So the longest ballot people are here in Winnipeg South Centre. It should be, uh, the the reason why that by-election is being held is is, uh, to fill the late Jim Carr's uh, role as a a liberal. His son is running, is expected to win, but when you have so many people on the ballot uh, in a by-election, this is all about getting voters out. And certainly that's the case uh, in rural Manitoba, getting the vote out. The Conservatives are a pretty well-oiled machine, but don't count Bernier out, especially in a by-election. If Bernier were to win that, there would be absolute, uh, I won't say panic, but there would be something approximating panic coming from some Conservatives. As you say, the by-elections will often deliver a result that isn't reflective of what will happen in a general election, but certainly he would be making a lot of noise 
and he would be providing some uh, some foundation for other candidates for the People's Party of Canada in other writings. But it's kind of fascinating to watch this. And 46 candidates in Winnipeg South. I mean, how long is the ballot? Yeah, it's fairly long. It, it goes up to, to my knees. Well, the way they structure it is two columns and, and whatnot. But again, this is, um, you know, organizations saying uh, we do not like uh, the politics of now. And, uh, you know, Trudeau came in talking about uh, electoral reform and quickly shelved that for obvious reasons, and, and that's political survival. Um, I'm not saying Bernier is going to win, but I'm certainly saying that Bernier has got a chance at this. And I think um, if you're a conservative, you're trying to put that notion into the mind of your voters to get them out. Now, in a two-horse race that, that is his constituency, you know, uh, anybody that would be voting liberals, do you want to reward Bernier by sticking with your candidate or the New Democrat candidate or even the Green candidate? I'll be fascinated in that area as well. But Bernier certainly has a vocal, loyal uh, constituency there. And yeah, it would send, it would send uh, all sorts of waves, especially in, in rural Ontario, where um, last time around, you know, the, the People's Party, you know, finished um, fairly high in some of these constituencies as, as well. It's a lightning rod stuff, and I'll be very fascinated to see what happens. If he loses... Does he disappear? Does the People's Party disappear in Manitoba, rural Manitoba? Great question. Um, it's 20% right now. Um, we've got a fall election in provincially, and, and there's still, you know, some of the same people that, you know, have been kind of courted within the progressive conservatives uh, here in Manitoba. Um, and when you ask those tough questions of the PC candidates, in the area, they'll tell you kind of on background that, yeah, it's a factor. It continues to be a factor. Um, and we have to address that. But again, the PCs have enough of a plurality that it's, it's not going to mean that, uh, that MLAs are sent to the Manitoba legislature, you know, representing that. But it is a very, very vocal 20% of many of these constituencies and many more uh, as well. But I always say in by-elections, Anything can happen. So federally, all eyes are going to be on this riding uh, in a couple of weeks. Rich, in about 10 seconds, do you expect Polyev or other high-ranking conservative party members, leaders to come to the riding over the next couple of days? Absolutely. Uh, they're going to be here in the next couple of weeks as well. Um, but again, you have to balance that. You don't want to show up thinking that there's panic within the ranks. Uh, but Polyev has been regularly to Winnipeg, regularly to this area in the past. So I expect him at least to come one more time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.